If you're a leader and you're too high in confidence and too low in humility, you can be perceived as arrogant. If you're a leader and you're too high in humility, but too low in confidence, you can come across as wishy-washy. As a leader, you want to strive to be high in both confidence and humility. That is a quote from the Director of Research and Assessment for Bates Communications, Michael Seichik. He has a doctorate in organizational development and is an expert in executive coaching and executive presence. And he is who I interviewed today. We're going to talk about some of the research and statistics that they have from Bates Communication around executive leadership. And some of these facts will surprise you about what it costs a company when a leader struggles and fails. It's very costly. And you may be surprised on what that cost is. You might be surprised about how many leaders are not engaged, even very successful leaders. There may be more disengagement at the top than you think. And we're going to talk a little bit about the imposter syndrome. I don't know if you know what that is, but we're going to talk about it. And you're going to hear a statistic that might surprise you. It did me about the number of leaders who can suffer from the imposter syndrome throughout their career at different points in their career. Michael Sychik is going to share three root causes of why leaders get derailed or off track. We're going to talk about the Executive Presence Index Survey Tool. And we're going to talk about areas within that tool that leaders can focus on. It's feedback that they can get around executive presence, things they can do or better understand to help them get unstuck and get back on track. We're going to talk about some research that Michael has around what leaders who are known for leading innovative teams do very well. We discuss valuable and I think very practical tips and ideas to help leaders demonstrate confidence and humility. And he explains what true confidence in a leader looks like and acts like. This is a great interview. It's episode number 41. I can't wait to share it with you. Let's get started. Michael, hit it. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Hey there, welcome. My name is Susie Price of Priceless Professional Development where we help senior leaders build and sustain an energetic, committed, and drama-free workforce. I am the owner of Priceless Professional Development. We have been in business now 14 years. I'm a professional facilitator, consultant, and author. And some of the things we do here at Priceless Professional Development is selection assessment. I'm an expert in a tool called Trimetrics, and we use those results from the Trimetrics assessment in selection throughout the lifetime of employees, from onboarding to development and team building. And I've recently added the Executive Presence Index tool for senior leaders or for any leader who is getting ready for or stepping into a bigger stage where influencing others becomes a bigger part of their job responsibility and a need for success and building skills in that area. I'm excited about episode number 41, this episode today, because it is the last of a four-part series, last for now, on Executive Presence. The title of today's topic is Leaders Derailed, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. And it, as I mentioned in the start, I'm interviewing executive presence expert Michael Sychik. The show notes for today's episode can be found at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash derailed. 
So I've talked about this in other episodes, but I'll quickly bring you up to date. I became certified in the Executive Presence Index Survey tool last summer, where I went to Boston and studied with Bates Communication. Prior to the training class and certification program, I completed the Executive Presence Survey myself. Michael Sychek, the person we're talking to today, was my coach. And what I found from him is he's a good listener. He was very practical. He was able to tie all the thoughts together and points together for me on my survey tool and has helped teach us how to do that. And you'll see a demonstration of that during some of our discussions today. So I want to refresh your memory on the definition of executive presence. It's the qualities of a leader as seen through the eyes of others that engages, inspires, aligns, and moves people to action. So it's always about what we're measuring in the Executive Presence Index, the skills or the qualities that will allow you to influence others so that they're inspired and aligned with you and the business initiatives and causes people to move forward. It's seen through their eyes. So it's not always your intentions, but what are people seeing and how are they reacting to how you're leading? And there are three main areas that we cover. Character, as how people experience you and trust you. Substance, how you lead, your credibility. And style, what people see and how you command the room. So it's character, substance, and style. So those are the three main dimensions. There are other episodes available. As I mentioned, this is a four-part series, and you can find the directory and the other episodes at wakeupeagerworkforce.com, where you can also, at wakeupeagerworkforce.com, subscribe to our podcast, download our iPhone app, and I'd love for you to leave a review. If this episode helps you or any other episodes that we've had have helped you, if you wouldn't mind taking time to leave a review, that would help others find us. So I appreciate that. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of Michael's background, and then we'll get right into the interview. So as I mentioned, he's the Director of Research and Assessment for Bates Communication. He is a certified Bates Executive Presence Index Feedback Provider, and he offers coaching and assessment interpretation to senior leaders and executives. He has worked for 30 years with senior executives, and this is really true. You'll experience this in the interview, but he believes that coaching provides leaders with one critical thing highly successful and powerful executives rarely get, the truth about the impact of their behavior on others. So he does this in a very smart way. He is really good about telling the truth, and he talks about a little bit about that in our interview today, where he was a full-time trusted advisor to the CEO of a major hospital, and that has, I think, appears to me, formed a lot of how he coaches. He has wonderful experience. He's coached over 900 senior executives from companies like Johnson & Johnson, Lockheed Martin, Verizon. There's a long list of large companies where he has coached senior executives. Prior to joining Bates, he operated a successful consulting firm, and he also worked as a managing director of another consulting firm, RHR International. He's created workshops and unique approaches to executive development that have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, USA Today many others. And he has a degree from Trinity College, Bachelor of Arts degree, and a doctorate in adult education, group dynamics, and organizational development from Temple University. Highly qualified, very nice man, very wise, and lots of good insight to share with you. So let's get to the interview. Welcome, Michael. So glad to have you here today. Well, thanks for having me. 
I'm excited about our topic, Leaders Derailed. And first, though, before we get into you sharing all of your expertise and knowledge and insight, what I want to do is ask some kind of fun questions so we can get to know you in that way. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, tell us about your favorite guilty pleasure TV show. Okay. Well, I don't have too many of those guilty pleasures, but one is I really like The Voice. I don't watch other competition shows, but I like this one because one of the music, especially during the face-off rounds, it's got a lot of high energy, and I really enjoy that. I also like it because I find the judges are trying to bring out the best in people. They're they're like coaches. Uh, So they're pretty positive. Even the judges that are competing with each other kind of help each other's contestants. So it's really about bringing out the potential in people and finding their voice. For that reason, I really enjoy it. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but I really enjoy the voice. (laughs) I like that, and I used to be a big fan of American Idol, which I hear is coming back. But one, it keeps me up to date on music because I kind of get out of date on what's happening, you know. So I like that part, kind of what you said, you like the music. And the other is, yeah, seeing people reach their potential, you know, and become more of who they already are is, is pretty invigorating. Right. Awesome. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your favorite possession. Well, I had to think about this one because I have a number, but one of them is I have a number of old bottles a former student collected for me. A long time ago, I taught at a school for minimally brain damaged and emotionally disturbed children, and he liked to rummage through old trash dumps. Every once in a while, he would bring me a beautiful antique bottle he would find at the bottom of a dump. And he gave it to me as a gift, as a way to say thank you for all the emotional support I gave him. So it really is meaningful to me because kind of the thrill I get out of coaching people or consulting organizations going through change is seeing that people change in behavior. And his behavior changed, and he was so thankful he would give me these gifts. So they're really meaningful to me. You know, when I see them, I smile because, you know, I think of him and all the work we did together. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful, humble gift, too. Right, yeah. He's very poignant. Yeah. So, I actually, I'm looking at them now. They're in my office, so. Oh, that's neat. How many years ago was that? Well, I'm pretty old. That was in 1969. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, So, I stayed with you all these years. That is a favorite possession. Right, yeah. Through all the moving and everything. That's a lot of meaning. Remind you why you do what you do. Exactly. (laughs) Out of where it all started, I bet. Right. Maybe. Awesome. Appreciate you sharing that. Now we're going to go into talking about our title today or a topic in our title today about uh, leaders and derailment and how people can be the best that they are and become more of who they are and not let things that are speed bumps or roadblocks take them down the path that doesn't let them be the best of who they are. Your organization, Bates Communication, has done some research that you shared with me, and I'll mention it here, that derailment, executives who are failing in some way or another, can cost an organization more than 20 times an executive salary in some cases, amounting to millions of dollars. So that's an amazing number. I had heard eight times, but that's probably not always at the C-suite or the top executive suite. So 20 times an executive salary. And I hadn't heard this number before either. Only 34% of managers and executives are engaged. I think that's interesting. Right. We hear that about cultures. You know, we hear that about just engagement in general, but I didn't always apply that to managers and executives. Did that surprise you, the 34%? 
Unfortunately, not entirely for a number of reasons. I think one is people are not necessarily happy in their jobs, maybe because of the economy. They feel a little stuck. I'm old enough to remember that you would change jobs to move up. And the rule of thumb when I was younger was you didn't change jobs, change companies, unless you were going to get a 25% bump in salary. And when you tell millennials that today, they just can't believe it. I mean, it's like, wow. you know. It's, so it was a different time. But yeah. the other thing is, I think that many executives, even very successful ones, because we tend to coach highly successful executives, they are not great at engaging other people and getting them involved. And part of that is because they probably got promoted because they were can-do, action-biased people who got things done. And when you get to a more senior level, I mean, this is almost a cliche, you have to start getting work done through other people. You can't do it all yourselves. Right. And for some people, that's a hard transition to make because they've been so successful at getting it done themselves that when they get to the more senior levels, it's quicker and faster to do it themselves, or they don't trust the other folks to do it as well as they do. So again, it's not surprising that engagement scores are low because not all executives value or know how to really engage other people in a meaningful way. So the many executives, if they have this bias, which I totally can see that, the can-do action bias, that's why they got promoted. So they're not happy in their job. 34% are not engaged, not happy because they're doing either too much, they have too much on their plate, or they're frustrated because they can't get as much done as they want to get done. And it often ties to not being able to delegate or let go. Yeah, or they don't feel appreciated. Yeah. There's just too much going on. Their roles are not clear. Their responsibility is not clear. Change is happening so fast. The amount of ambiguity and uncertainty that people are dealing with, they're just kind of longing for the days of the past, which are not going not to return. Back. Yeah. <laughs> not coming back. Yeah. Just keeps going faster, right? Exactly. And more matrix. And things are getting done more in teams, and which makes it even harder. And you're not in necessarily functional or professional teams. You're in cross-functional teams. And so how do you get more engaged in that when you're dealing with peers and trying to influence peers? So it's it's a lot trickier today to feel engaged. You kicked it off with a little bit of this is their ability to influence the need for that to be a stronger skill growing yeah, the, exponentially. Right. Yeah. The days of command and control leadership, that's fading fast. So when you're working in teams, particularly project teams where the leader is not necessarily your boss or is higher in position and everyone's kind of a peer, that makes it harder to how, what, how do you speak up? How do you get your voice heard? How do you influence the group? That all becomes much, much harder. So one of the other statistics from your research talks about 60% of all companies cite leadership gaps as their top business challenge. So it sounds like many companies are saying, we don't have the leaders to go to our top ranks. They're not ready. Yeah, they're not ready. And part of it is because of what I was saying before. In other words, if the previous leadership has not delegated very much, there's little chance for people to learn new skills, to stretch. The other is that business models are changing, who the competition is is changing. Things are changing so rapidly that people are not necessarily prepared to lead in these new kinds of environments. Because essentially, everyone 
in some form or another, is probably leading a transformational change. So kind of no matter where you sit, no matter what your formal title is, you're probably trying to implement change. And most people have not been trained or experienced enough in how to do that. And that's what people are facing. So the type of leader we need today is not the leader that we have experienced. And so there's not that many role models of what to do. So with these statistics and our topic talking about going off track or derailment or leaders who are struggling, even though they are successful, there are some challenges that can either get worse or get better. And you've talked a little bit about... Oh, go ahead. So, you know, what we find in, in our practice is that why people come to us, uh, they're usually very successful, but something's changed. They're now, you know, kind of have to perform, so to speak, on a bigger stage. In other words, they've gotten a dramatic increase in scope or responsibility, or they have to lead a transformational change, or they're in a new role, they're in a new organization. Something is very different. And so it's, again, the old standard, you know, what got you here won't get you there. So they've been very successful, but they're facing a context that is very different and they need to kind of hone their skills. So sometimes their strengths are helping them and sometimes they're actually getting in the the way because it's an overstrength or they need to use muscles they haven't used that much in the past. And they just need a little help in figuring out, okay, what do I need to do that's different? And what do I need to do to leverage my strengths? So that's what we find. The folks we use aren't necessarily derailing. Yep. They're just a little stuck. Yeah, yeah. So some of the warning signs, if you are someone running a company and you're looking at your leadership team... And you're not feeling stuck. You're clear. You're doing. You, you things are going along like. But you're looking at your team and you're thinking about, okay, who on my team might be in this place where they're very successful, but things have changed and they're a little stuck. Some of the warning signs, you know, that they could look for. What would that look right. like? Well, you Talk would see that. people exhibiting some kind of distress. I don't necessarily mean you know total dysfunction, but. No. Uh, you know, maybe they're losing their composure a little bit more than they used to, getting a little bit short, or they seem frazzled or a little out of sorts or even depressed or confused. There may be a, a number of signs, but what's behind it is they're a little shaken up by the fact that what used to work isn't necessarily working anymore. And the people that are in the position that I was talking about they're new in the role or they're new in the organization, they're being pressured to show results very quickly. And yet they're trying to navigate something that's fairly new. So they're under a tremendous amount of stress. And stress often brings out some of our least favorite characteristics, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. That's when the overstrengths can really, we can really overdo what we do, I think, as well. Right, right. Yeah, we're good at being assertive, so we're even, you know, a thousand percent assertive because that's our default. We're under stress and we're overdoing. Exactly, exactly. And and it becomes kind of a vicious cycle. So, for example, if you have too much to do and you can't do it all yourself, but you feel pressure to get it done, you start to move quicker. Yeah. So you do things by yourself. You don't explain what's going on as well as you should. 
so that the people who work for you are kind of confused. Like, uh-huh. why are we doing this? <laughs> In other words, the boss is usually brighter, quicker, faster than everybody else. That's why they've been promoted. Yeah, and they've yeah. kind of been there, done that. So when they see a problem, they go, oh, I know what to do. And they just go out and do it. So they never explain the rationale behind what they're doing. So the people that are on the team are, don't understand where's the boss coming from. So they're, they hesitate to make a decision which just proves to the boss that they're incapable of making a decision. So he does it himself even more or herself even more. So it becomes a vicious cycle because the boss keeps on getting disappointed, proving that the boss needs to do it him or herself. And the other people are saying, well, I'd do it if I was clear about what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Or why are we doing it a different way? I, I have no idea. So they hesitate. Yep. So you, you need to break that vicious cycle. And that's what I do in the coaching part, you know, I help people kind of break that vicious cycle, which is actually paradoxically to slow down a little bit. Not entirely. I'm not trying to get people fired, but, you know, there's some times when you need to slow down, explain how you got from A to B and say, you know, do people have any questions, any concerns so that you're setting up people to succeed rather than trying to do it yourself and getting in that vicious cycle I was just talking about. And when you explain it, it makes so much sense. But when someone's in the midst of it, that's how somebody successful could derail is they're in the midst of it. They can't stop the cycle. No one around them is offering assistance, maybe, because everybody's moving fast. Well, actually, just yesterday, I was giving some feedback to a CFO of a major corporation, and he wanted feedback because he is possibly the heir apparent to the CEO and he knows that he needs to change a little bit. Part of his problem was one of the things we measure is confidence. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more depth later. Talk a little bit about that. Yep. But this person is highly confident. He's also uh, six foot five, weighs 250 pounds (laughs) and has been at the company a long time and has experienced everything and is really competent. Yeah. But what happens is because he's so confident, so powerful as a personality, yep. he's very passionate, he wears his emotions on his sleeves, he intimidates people. Yeah, shuts them down. Yep. He didn't realize how much of an issue that was till he got this feedback. And his confidence, which obviously serves him well in many, many ways, was actually getting in his way because his peers were not speaking up in the meeting. They would complain behind his back outside the meetings. So things weren't getting done because people were being passive aggressive because they didn't feel comfortable enough telling him to his face that they had some concerns. Things weren't getting done as smoothly as they could have had he allowed for them to voice their questions and concerns up front. Isn't it interesting how it oftentimes boils down to communication and trust and information, time. You have to, like you said, slow down to speed up oftentimes. Right. Uh, So what we talked about was the need for him to be more intentional about when and how he involves others. So sometimes you need to make a quick decision, and that's fine. But if you do that all the time, if you're doing it all by, you know, then things like engagement and all the other things we've been talking about go down. 
to involve other people often takes more time, but you get more engagement and hopefully you're involving people that know things that you don't know, so you're getting to a better solution. Okay, so you have to be intentional about, so when do I involve other people? Who do I involve? Why am I involving them? Am I clear about how we're going to make this decision? So he needed to broaden. It's the old classic situational leadership. When is it appropriate for him to make a decision by himself? And sometimes that's appropriate. But sometimes yeah. it's not the right thing to do for many, many reasons. Interesting. And if he had never gotten the feedback and never gotten open to, you know, actually sitting down and looking at, okay, people are seeing me this way, and that's the piece that is keeping me from being ready to be the CEO and maybe even keeping me from being totally effective in my current role. If he had not had that feedback and just kept on keeping on, he might be one of those statistics, he or she or someone else like this person, who ends up not being the successful person they are made to be because they derail, because these things just multiply, right? Right. In other words, he gets passed over for the CEO's job, but never knew why. Because he never got the feedback about, for years, his peers had been complaining about him behind his back, right? And so he gets surprised. Everybody Um, knows it except the person. That's right. In other words, it's not his intention to be intimidating. He's a really nice guy. And one of the other facets, we call them, that we get feedback on is concern. He had really high concern scores. So people really like him, but they're afraid of him. (laughs) Yeah. I can tell he cares, but I'm afraid (laughs) I'm going to get beat up or something. So people get very confused. It's like, this guy is very concerning, but he's you know, he just shuts down discussion. So, you know, so, you know, he just had to tweak a, a couple behaviors to really make a difference. It's paradoxical. I said, so paradoxically, people are saying, if you're really concerned, then let us speak up more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Right. Again, right? you care, but we also don't have a voice. That's um, right. And that's probably, I'm trying to think of what facet that would be, probably interactivity or... Right. Well, uh, there was a, a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. He was, in assertiveness, he was very good at stating his opinion, <laughs> but yeah, he, was, yeah. Yeah. He, would shut down a, he would shut down discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, we're going to talk a little bit more about the facets, but let's just kind of recap what you would say are the root causes of a leader, successful leader, starting to go off track. We're using the word derailment. They maybe aren't derailed at this point, but they're doing, I'm feeling some things that could cause that to happen. What would be a summary of some of the root causes? One of the things is unaware, being unaware of what you're doing that's influencing others. What else would you say, or would you put that in the top root causes? Yeah, what is a lack of good feedback throughout their career? Yeah. In other words, even people who get promoted sometimes they really don't have a clear idea of why they got promoted. Yeah. So people need very specific feedback about what they're doing well and what they're not doing well and need to change. And organizations are not good at that generally. Some are and some aren't. But in terms of why people derail or you know get stuck is because they haven't had good feedback. And when they do get feedback, they don't get kind of coached in actions they can take 
to change people's perceptions about them. So it's not unusual for me to start reviewing the feedback report and the executives say, oh, I've heard this before. And I say, well, so why haven't you changed? done anything, yeah. What actions have you taken? Oh, uh, that's right, right. right. Yeah. Back, but not either no coaching or not very, in my opinion, not very good coaching. Yeah. Because at the end, and you know this from having been through it, what I do at the end of the first coaching session is say, so what are one or two actions you can take in the next week or two? What's a meeting that's coming up? What's a real situation that you're working on right now where we can figure out what's a small little change you can do to make a difference? Because, it, it, one, it has to be practical. Two, it has to be done soon or people are going to get too busy and forget about it. And it has to be something real, right? This is not a nice to do. This is something that you can apply right away. Then people can see, oh, I can do that. Yeah, it's doable. You know? This is coaching. This is not psychotherapy. We're we're not asking people to change their behaviors. I mean, change their personality. It's just change. So, in other words, uh, the person I coached yesterday. So the next time you bring up a recommendation, you could even leave the room. But ask people, okay, write down on a piece of paper, what are your two or three concerns about my proposal? Or what are one or two things that I haven't thought of that I need to think of? In other words, there are things you, that's not hard, but it gives people a voice, it legitimizes it, as opposed to him saying, well, what do people think? Well, who's going to speak up? Nobody. Yeah, not going to. Nobody. Yeah, the hard way. Right. You have to intentionally create a safe space for them to do it. It's You have to change your behaviors. And so you just give people what to me seem like simple, obvious things, but to executives who haven't had the chance to really reflect about this, it's like, yeah. oh, that's, I can do that. That's not hard. That, that, yeah, it's, not, it's when it's our issue, when it's our moment. You know, we could see it for other people, but when it's our thing, right. um, it's not very obvious. And it needs right, to be because, very plainly spoken. Um, right. And you're like, oh, yeah. Right, right. I agree. Yeah, so one is not getting good feedback, Lack actionable good feedback. feedback. The other is one of the insights people get when we coach them is insight into the gap between their intentions and people's perceptions. Uh-huh, yep. So like this executive I was I've been talking about the one I coached yesterday because it's fresh in my mind. You know, his intention was not to intimidate people. Far from it, right? So what he learned was all the behaviors that he was doing that could cause other people to think that they couldn't speak up. All right. So we all have good intentions, but we're sometimes unaware of how it's actually being perceived by others. And that is extremely helpful to people, especially senior executives who don't always get the best feedback because people are a little nervous about telling the truth. Senior executives. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I had to convince this guy. I said, you're the number two person in the organization. I don't care how nice a guy you are. You know, that's going to intimidate people. I told him a story about myself, which is clearly my favorite topic. <laughs> In- <laughs> you have good stories. I've, I've heard of some of them. I like them. Tell one now. I was about 20-something years ago. I was in healthcare. I was at an academic medical center, and I was the manager of organizational development. 
So I was in human resources, which is probably the least prestigious function in any organization. And I was at the lowest level. I was a manager, right? And HR reported to the CFO. So the CFO saw me make presentations and things like that. The CFO became CEO. And the day he became CEO, he asked me to be his right-hand man. On a Friday, I left work being the manager of organization development. And on Monday, I jumped five levels. I jumped five levels. And I was the right hand of the CEO. I was working in the CEO's office. And my biggest shock was when I'm walking down the hall that first week, people interacted with me differently. They were now scared of me. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm just the same guy. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going, oh, my God, I got to be careful what I say in front of Michael. People would read my facial expressions. I mean, one day that first week, I had just had an argument with my wife. So I looked upset. And they were thinking, oh, my God, what's wrong? He now has privy to all this secret information about the organization. Maybe we're not doing well. What's going on? I mean, when you're in a powerful position, people are reading everything. And they're usually reading it as negatively as they can. So in addition to his confidence and his experience and his physical size and his booming voice. I mean, he had to realize he's not good old Chuck, right? Yeah, yeah. He's he's a powerful person. And that's going to change the way people interact with you and perceive you. It's surprising how often leaders forget the level of influence they have. From the minute they step off the elevator or walk into the building, everybody's watching. Sure. Easy to forget. Uh, It's easy to not realize that. Yeah, yeah. That's why when you know a leader sits around and he or she says, "Well, yeah. uh, Well, what do people think? Yeah, tell me the truth. That's that's why I want the truth." And most people in their heads are going, "No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. I'm not going to tell you the truth." But as you can tell from (laughs) the way I talk, that's never been an issue with me, and that's why that CEO asked me to be his right hand person because. knew I would tell him exactly what I felt and what I was hearing through the grapevine without revealing confidences. Yeah, when I found out you were my coach through the certification process and get debriefing, I loved it when I looked on your website. You know, one of the things that you talk about or in your bio is tell the truth about the impact of behaviors on others. I'm like, oh, yeah, he does do that. It's like, lucky me, because I need to hear it. (laughs) Right, right. So do all of us. So that's great. So let's talk about what would you say are the top three facets measured in the Executive Presence Index survey? And I know it's probably hard to pick some, but I guess what I'm thinking about is who's listening and saying, okay, think about these areas. What are three areas that you see most often that cause an executive to start going off track, start derailing some that are measured? What would you say? Well, I think this may sound silly, but I think all the things we measure, we we call them facets, are equally important. But the importance of a facet varies with the leader's context, what challenges they're facing at this moment. So, for example, if you're trying to implement a transformational change, a major change, uh, what might be important is vision, right? But if you're goal is to become like I was with that CEO, a trusted advisor or a coach. Maybe the most important facets are 
concern or resonance or integrity. So while they're all important, what becomes most important depends upon what challenges you're facing. So for example, if your role is essentially to be innovative, then I would focus on different facets. So it really depends upon what you're trying to do. So our coaching is not formulaic. Like this is the most important facets always. It really depends. It really depends on the context. The business context and then how the person is engaging in that context, you're going to see facets will show up that are scored. Sometimes facets that or areas in the EXPI are scored low and they don't matter as much because there are other things that are more important to whatever the business. So if it's innovation or it's, or it's change, you're going to focus on the facets that most relate to that mission, right? Yeah. Again, to go back to the person I coached yesterday, in other words, if his major issue is he wants to be perceived as the next CEO, then what we did was looked at his strengths with that frame as yep. well as his development needs with that frame. How were his strengths helping position him to be the next CEO and how were his development needs getting in the way? Now, if he said he was leading a major change initiative or he was uh, in charge of a larger integration because there's nothing in particular that says, hey, if this is happening, um, the executive may be headed, you know, having some headed toward derailment um, necessarily. There's nothing that would stand out to you and say. Well, we have one facet, integrity, which is the highest rated facet of everyone we've done. But if someone is really low on integrity, I would say that's a game changer. I mean, that's. Yeah. And you say highest rated usually because you're coaching successful executives. Integrity is scored. Uh, most people tend to score that pretty strong or pretty high. Get it scored Right. They wouldn't others. be where they are if, if yeah, they didn't they have high integrity. In the assessment, it's about oh. being dependable, reliable, fair, moral behavior, promise keeping. Right. That's a little summary of that. Okay. That's kind of table stakes. If you don't have that, yeah, um, I mean, you're, you're probably not even in the game. All right. So one of the areas that I wanted to talk about um, is confidence. And um, the reason is because oftentimes leaders appear confident to others. So you can miss the signs that they are struggling or that there's a problem uh, because they look the part. And I see that as being some confusion sometimes when you know people think, okay, well, he's confident or she's confident. She's running the show. She's a slam dunk, you know, in regard to being successful but I think sometimes we miss what's going on that's not visible, like hidden signs of stress or, like you said, some of the, you know, how they're being perceived or gaps. They've not really gotten the feedback. I had found some research that you did on confident leaders and or a paper that you had written about it. And just talk a little bit about some of your key findings around confidence. Sure. One thing is we differentiate between self-confidence, which is what most people talk about and what the popular press talks about a lot. Yeah. So there's self-confidence, but there's also something we call social confidence. Social confidence is how you show up, how you're perceived by others. So self-confidence is what's going on in your head and social confidence is how you're perceived by others. So sometimes some people I coach are low in self-confidence and are surprised that they scored high in confidence because we measure social confidence. So in other words, to us, confidence is things like, 
Are you decisive? Are you confident enough to invite dissenting opinions? Do you take reasonable risks? Do you take accountability when things don't go so well? That's what we call confidence. So sometimes someone has a lack of self-confidence and they show up as high in confidence. They go, what's wrong with this? How does that happen? Because I don't really feel that. I'm glad people see it, but... Yeah. So we go over the items and say, well, this is how you're showing up. Now, you may have lots of worries or self-doubt in your head. People don't see that. All they see is what you're doing. And, And that is perfectly normal. In other words, when I coach CEOs and you get to like the second or third session with them, they talk about all their doubts and how nervous they are. I'm making decisions that affect 50,000, 100,000 people, and I'm not so sure I know what I'm doing. You know, it's things are not so certain. I'm making educated guesses. I coached one person who was the number two person at one of the biggest financial services firms in the world. And in about our third session, he started to cry. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? He says, I'm so miserable and so unhappy in my job. I don't have a good marriage and I hardly spend any time with my kids and they're growing up and I don't know who they are. And I'm thinking this guy must earn $10, $20 million a year and he's miserable. And he could easily just retire. I mean, he has enough money and he's near retirement age. And so I said, what's keeping you from kind of slowing down or semi-retiring? Or He said, if I slow down, I'll never forget this. He said, if I slow down, people will realize that I'm just this stupid bank teller. So that's how he started out. He started out as a bank teller. And in his head, and this is true of many people, their self-image is still who they were when they were like 20, 22 years old. So he has what the popular press calls the imposter syndrome, right? He said, I just got here by luck. I have no idea how I got here. I don't deserve to be. In other words, he was one of the most powerful financial executives in the world. And his self-image was that he didn't deserve to be there. So he worked tirelessly because he felt if he slowed down, people would see through it and think truth that he's... would just, come out, quote unquote, truth. Yeah. Right. So it's amazing that when you get people who are at the top and they trust you and they open up, they have all this self-doubt, right? But they come across as confident. And that's important. So, I mean, hopefully most people don't have his self-confidence issues. That's pretty extreme. But it's actually healthy to have some self-doubt. In other words, if you have no self-doubt, then you're going to be overconfident. You're going to come across as an arrogant know-it-all. So what we found is that the social confidence that we measure, actually, and I'm not going to get too geeky and go into the research, but there's published research that shows that that kind of confidence correlates with organizational performance, engagement, all kinds of things. So we find that what's important, it's good to have self-confidence. But to be hard about it, that's not what is important in terms of the business world. It's can you make tough decisions? Do you invite people who have different points of view? Do you hold yourself accountable? Those kinds of things. That's what makes a difference. And to touch on the imposter syndrome, which is interesting because it seems like if you feel that so strongly that I don't deserve to be there, and I do think that almost everybody goes through a bit of that, I would guess, or a lot of people do. Any thoughts on what people well, actually, think about or do more of or less of to work through that struggle? 
Well, first of all, uh, research shows that 80% of the people suffer from the imposter syndrome at some point in their lives. 80%. Yeah. Yeah. Now, people talk about it more in terms of women have it, but that's just because uh, women, yeah. they talk I've about it more openly. But, Many men tell me that they are in this. So it's yeah. interesting to hear it's 80% in your research. That's interesting. Yeah, and the valid research is there's not that much difference between men and women, but women just talk about it more. So yeah. people think about it more that women have it more, but it's equally across genders. Now, that's so embedded in people's perceptions about themselves. And as I said, I'm a coach, not a psychotherapist. Right. <laughs> so so yeah. you're not going to change that. And actually, data won't necessarily change it. In other words, when I say... It's an emotional to, response. Yeah, so if you say to someone who thinks they're an imposter, and you say, well, look at your confidence scores, they go, you see, that just proves I'm fooling people even more. So, you know, yeah. in other words, that's the frame they have. Yeah. So it's very hard to change that with some people. Although with some of the people I've coached, when I normalize what they're experiencing. In other words, yeah. everyone has some self-doubt. That's healthy, right? But you're making decisions, you're doing all these other things that really count. So you're doing fine, right? I mean, I had a person, she was relatively young. She was in her late 20s, but she was so bright and so good and had such a strategic mind that she was actually a counsel to the executive team. And so she's thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And all their feedback, <laughs> yeah. she is just so helpful and just gives us great insights. And meanwhile, she's thinking, wow, I don't belong here. And I'm saying, yes, you do. Look at the feedback. They actually want you to speak up more, right? But she was afraid to speak up too much. And they're saying, no, they want you to speak up more. So. I mean, just talking through this sometimes helps people see that they actually, what they're saying is valued. People don't think they're a phony. You may wonder how they get here when I'm 28 years old, which is understandable, but look at the feedback. So that getting feedback can be a piece of the puzzle. It won't be for some, the reframe won't help, but some others, though, getting the feedback and understanding you know, how others are seeing you sometimes can help people readjust how they're seeing themselves. Yeah. You can put a slightly different frame on it, and that can be helpful. It's not a magic bean kind of thing. It's not going to suddenly no. change people's personality, but it no. helps them see a little bit better. And actually, this what she started to do was to even speak up more, and she got even more positive feedback. So yeah. that is a virtuous circle, a good circle. Oh, yeah. and so she got more That's confidence. Right. right. Yeah. I got a lot of confidence when I was this right-hand man of the CEO, for the first couple months, I would give him 10 ideas to improve the business every month. And after, I think it was the second or third month, he said, Michael, I don't want you to give me 10 ideas. I want you to give me 50. Wow. And I said, I can't give you 50 ideas a month. He goes, why not? I said, well, you know, particularly like <laughs> some of those last items, they're not going to be very good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be stretching. He said, okay. So let's assume the last 40 items you give me, half of them are junk, or three quarters of them are junk. Let's say three quarters. So now I have 20 ideas, not 10. Um, give me 50 ideas. Yeah. So he gave me permission to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. 
that did so much my confidence. I haven't shut up since. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him or darn him. I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In other words, and some of the crazy, quote unquote, crazy ideas, we would go, hmm, that's an interesting idea. In other words, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a boss, give people permission to take a reasonable risk. Or if you're, if you're not the boss, talk to your boss about, you know, what would good look like? What would you like me to do more of? Uh, get permission, because that's what's going to unloosen some of people's potential. They're going back. You know, they may be intimidated or not clear of what you want. When I have a boss who gives me permission, it just loosens a lot of my potential. And in a way, when he gives you permission to be wrong, he's saying, I like your ideas. I see your strengths. And, and for me personally, I think about every, every person who's had the biggest influence in my life and helped me more and more every day move out of being you know, someone who's wondering if she's an imposter or not has been all the people who believe in me and express right. it either said or unsaid in, in different kind of ways, like you can figure this out or took risks and said, okay, you take the podium, you lead this when I really wasn't ready, but that person saw that I had some ability and just let me do it. You know, so right. I just think that translates. That's what he was saying to you. And I think that's what feedback does. And I just think that's what leaders can do when they look for people's potential and reflect it back to them in said or unsaid ways. That helps right. quell. If 80% of the people have an imposter syndrome at some point, some level or some degree of it, we all need to be telling each other a little bit more about what we see in them and what we appreciate their potential. And Yeah. Give people permission with guardrails. Yeah. In other words, give people permission, but also put some constraints on it. Like, I want you to come up with ideas, but you can't spend more than X amount of money or it has to turn a profit within blah, 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 whatever. In other words, be realistic. It's not just let the horse out of the gate. It's kind of what are your expectations? What's in bounds? What's out of bounds? Those kinds of things. All right. We're going to close out the confidence with this last question, and maybe it'll be revisit of what we've talked about. But we're talking about confidence and how it can help a career or hinder a career. And we talked about the differences, social confidence and self-confidence. With social confidence, say somebody has low self-confidence, but know they have power on social confidence. Talk a little bit about behaviors or actions. You touched on it, being decisive, but talk a little bit more in depth about how you can be perceived as having social confidence as a leader. Okay. So one relatively easy one, uh, one of our items is that you invite dissenting points of view because to other people that shows confidence because you're open, you are not necessarily being arrogant and saying, well, I have all the answers. In other words, if you have confidence without much humility, you can come across as arrogant. So one of our items, as I said, is inviting dissent. That's relatively easy to do. As I I think I gave us a small example is, okay, so I want everybody to write down, and it's important that you happen to write it down, because if you just say, what am I doing wrong, yeah. and they're intimidated, they're not going to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Write they it down. Say, well, I asked, and they didn't tell right. me. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's because. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gee, I've already said kind of how old I am, so I remember <laughs> um, Kennedy, JFK, when he was president, out of the gate, he had a, a fiasco, the Bay of Pigs, where we tried to invade Cuba and it was a fiasco. The next crisis he faced was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he took a totally different approach 
and I won't get all into the weeds here, but one of the things he would do is he wanted more conflict. He wanted more dissent, productive conflict. So once in a while, he would leave the room because he knew as president, one, he was intimidating people, and two, some people were probably saying things they thought would please him, and he didn't want to hear that. He wanted them to kind of, from their own positions of expertise, whether it was one of the military people or one of the other people in his cabinet, you know, treasury, he wanted each of them to feel free to speak up from their point of view about what to do. And he would periodically leave the room, right? That was a clear message. I want you folks to really speak the truth, duke it out, say what you got to say when I'm not here. That's the simple thing to do. Have people write it down. You can stay in the room, but call on the first person. What's number one on your list? What is something I'm not thinking about that I need to think about? Then you write it down on the whiteboard or whatever. Then you call on the second person. The first person can only do one thing because if you let someone dominate, that's the end of the discussion. Yep, yep. You call on the second person. What's on your list? Yeah, you go around. So you get, I don't know, five or ten ideas up there, and then you can have people vote on what's the, the key thing. Now, throughout this process, you haven't said much. You haven't responded, right? Because what you're doing is listening. And then at some point, then you can respond. You can either respond on the spot or say, these are really good concerns I haven't thought about. Let me get back to you later today or in a week or at the next meeting. But you give each concern or question the respect it deserves, which doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree with it. You can clearly disagree, but give your rationale. Then people will say, I was heard. My idea was respected. That shows confidence, shows confidence in them and also confidence in yourself that you're confident enough to hear what you might be doing wrong, because you don't have all the answers. That's true confidence. Yes, it is. Confidence in kind of running over people, people will see through that. I like the process. Facilitation, it's being a good facilitator at that point. Not It's taking off your I run the show hat for a period of time and facilitating conversation and making it easy. I always say, you know, weigh in last. You know, when you ask an opinion, don't start with your opinion. You weigh in last. (laughs) Our research on innovation, we looked at a thousand leaders and looked at the leaders who we were told in their comment section, because at the end of the survey, you have open in the comments. We looked what leaders were called leading innovative teams and which people were said, hey, they need to work on being more innovative and leading innovative teams. And we found significant differences. Without going into all the research, that's exactly, in other words, the ones that had teams that consistently were innovative, it wasn't because the leader was the smartest person in the room. Quite the contrary. They scored high on humility and engaging people and getting the best ideas out of the team, not imposing their ideas on the team, but getting the best ideas out of the team and having productive conflict. So too much confidence, if it's shutting things down, can really be harmful to having an effective, high-performing team. That's a big shift for highly confident leaders, um, some leaders. Yeah, well, if you look at some of the firms today that are consistently innovative, people write a lot about Pixar and their movies. They challenge each other. They come up with ideas. It can be from anybody. That's what they do. And a lot of the companies that are the most innovative, consistently sustained, have this approach. If you look at Google, they looked at their teams and did research. That they, did, they used Google Analytics to find out. Yeah, go figure. What was the difference? Tool. 
Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. What, what, what differentiated the high-performing, innovative teams and the ones that weren't? And they came up with the same stuff. It's having a good, clean fight. Creating the safe environment that allows people to really speak up and have a good fight. At the end and of the day, come engagement up, is about, hey, I matter, my opinions matter. Right. And it's about coming up with the best idea. It's not about consensus and having necessarily everyone agree and you, you come up with this mediocre thing because you want everybody to agree. No, it's like, what's the best idea? And if we can have a good, clean fight, then all the ideas get on the table. Everybody's been heard. Then you don't have much of a fight because you're like, okay, I've been heard. Now we'll sort it out. Right. So few teams are able. It is more rare than it is common, unfortunately. Right. And a lot of these companies have a a mantra that is um, disagree and commit. In other words, once we've had a good fight, the fight being about ideas, not about personalities, personalities, relationships. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And if you lose, this is where we're going. So let's commit to that idea. It would take a leader that's invited the interactivity, is humble enough and confident enough to do that. And then also someone who sat down and talked about the vision and talked about the why. And I'm listing some of the facets in the Executive Presence Index. But so many of those skills are about being a great influencer Correct. and a facilitator. And I tie those two together. I don't know if you do or not, but Absolutely. If you're a good influencer, you're a great facilitator. So you ask questions, you listen, you're present with people. It's the servant leadership idea. And what we found specifically with confidence is that we have another facet called humility. And they are usually like a yin and yang. In other words, if you want to be high in both, if you're high in confidence and low on humility, you can be seen as arrogant. If you're high on humility and low on confidence, you can be seen as a little wishy-washy, you're not making decisions, a little too easygoing, not too business focused. So you want to be high on both. So people that are too high on confidence in a sense. They're intimidating people like this yeah. person talking about. Yeah. He said, well, should I lower my confidence? I said, no, no, no. Raise your humility. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So you don't want to lower anything. You want to find out kind of what's the other anchor to this. And so... And, I like and that. Again, what's the other anchor? That's great. Yep. You want to be high on everything. So what are the other facets that are linked to it, correlated with it, that might enable you to change how people perceive you. But again, I don't want to make the CFO less confident. No, <laughs> but we've got to balance that out so you're not shutting people down. That's right. That's the key. I love that. So it's so interesting. I'm actually looking at all of the items. So for humility on the Executive Presence Index survey, there are six items that are statements people are asked about how they see your level of humility as a leader. And same thing for all of these areas we're talking about. So when you're saying, I want you to be high in both, what you're saying is when people see you, they see someone who has social confidence, takes risks, asks for input, invites dissent, but they're also seeing someone who's self-aware, open, vulnerable, curious, genuine, respects others. And so I think that's the quote of the day. There's so much wisdom that you shared, Michael, but the wanting to be high in both confidence and humility would be a potential game changer for someone who is trying to up-level in all areas of leadership. Right, right. And there's a lot written about 
humble leadership too. You just don't hear about them because they're humble. (laughs) (laughs) They're low-key about it. So let's go to some wrap-up questions. If you could put one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it be and what would it say? It would just say, uh, be curious. Part of that is because, as I think I mentioned before, people used to work in functional or professional silos, and they generally interacted with people just like themselves, which is what we like to do. We like to be with people like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was little diversity of thought and, or background. So now we work in cross-functional, cross-cultural teams, and we interact with people who think differently than we do. So this causes conflict. It's inevitable. But these differences are also, as I said, the basis of innovation. That's what you want. You want help. So we need to be more curious about why others see things differently. We often experience people we have conflict with as being difficult. That's not their intention. They're just seeing things differently. So what we need to do is try and ask other people questions. So, gee, I came to a different conclusions. How did you approach this? What were your assumptions? What were you thinking? You need to be curious because we are now dealing with people who are different than we are, even just professionally. So, you know, marketing and operations, they need to be more curious about where each other's coming from because there's some truth or a lot of truth in each point of view. Tease that out and find out what's going on. So my billboard would be, be curious. I like that it ties to what we were just talking about, which is have enough confidence to be humble enough to say, huh, what are you thinking? How does that work? Yeah. Exactly. And that is a facilitator. So a facilitator says, I want to guide and make things easy and understand. That's great. I love that. So what advice would you give your 25 to 30-year-old self about executive presence and leadership? It's a good question. I would tell my 25-year-old self to watch more closely how people react to what a leader says or does and not just on what the leader does. In other words, I would look at leaders and see what they do, but I would pay more attention to how people are reacting to that. In other words, What is it about how the leader communicates that makes a difference in people's motivation and performance? You know, look at their reactions more. Watch the audience. See what, I'd say, observe more and participate a little bit less. Because I was really focused a lot on getting my point of view across and getting my voice heard. So I would do that a little bit less and observe more. Which ties to your billboard, actually. Yeah, actually, yes. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, if you're really curious, you know, something that I always try to remind myself doesn't always work, but I try to, and that is be more focused on them than myself. So more about where they're coming from and what they need. As I get older, it gets easier. I'm less worried about how I look, you know, and how I'm coming across. Yeah. Well, also, you know, as a facilitator that you're going in and out of, say, the meeting you're running or the workshop you're running. It's hard, but sometimes you're focused on what you're presenting. But once in a while, you have to kind of remove yourself a little bit and say, okay, let me look around. How's the energy? What are people's faces saying? What's going on? And I think leaders need to be able to develop that skill a little bit more. Sometimes it's being in the orchestra and being on the balcony. Sometimes you're in the orchestra. Sometimes you need to step back and take a look at what's going on. I've run workshops where I've made the CEO an observer. He or she could not participate. Yeah. Which them crazy. Good, good direction, too. It's hard, but it's like, okay, right. if you participate at all, you need to participate last. Right. It, 
them. Oh, I want, but they said they just learned so much just by observing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were amazed at what they missed. And it is tricky when you're the CEO and you're running the business. You're so busy running the business. You're so busy being the orchestra, so to speak, and leading the orchestra. It's like to sit in the balcony and just take it all in. That's a whole different perspective. Lots of yeah. new insight. Yeah. You know, one of the items we have on the survey is how adept is this person at reading and responding to nonverbal cues? And when people score low on this, and lots of executives do, I ask, is it because you don't see what's going on or it's because you see what's going on and you go on anyway because you don't have time to stop and ask people what's going on? And it's 50-50. Half the executives say, I don't even see what's going on. And half say, I see what's going on, but I don't want to deal with it. And again, that's that action bias. That's that action bias. You need to slow down, kind of see what's going on. Because you may think everything's going fine, and if you look at people's expressions, they're going, um, uh-huh. I got another meeting in 10 minutes, or what's, what's this person yeah, talking? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying yes, but I mean no, so I'll say yes to your face, and then when I leave, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> and then they're surprised that when execution goes poorly. Yeah, yeah. So last question. Let's close this with one bit of advice or wisdom. So I don't know if you can narrow it down to one that you want every leader to take away from our discussion today about confidence, executive presence. We talked about derailment. What's the last bit of advice you'd like to share? I'd say everything we talked about, everything we measure is a behavior that is malleable to change. So you always have the choice of changing how you show up, your presence, your leadership, how people perceive you. So Like the example, if your confidence is intimidating people, you can do something to change that. Your behavior is not, your personality isn't going to change that much. That's hard to change. But your behaviors, they can change. So most people leave our coaching sessions feeling really positive and a little rejuvenated. They feel relieved because they've just read all this feedback and they go, oh my God. I remember when I went through this and got feedback from our CEO. Suzanne Bates, one of my reactions is, what is she thinking about? Why is she so wrong? <laughs> yeah, what does she know? Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, then I thought about it and said, you know, I can see why she thinks that way. And we had a yeah. great discussion, and I changed one behavior. Yeah. Changed one behavior. And it made a big difference in how people perceive me. It's all malleable to change. Yep. Didn't change my personality. <laughs> no, still you. No one's going to do yeah. But I changed one behavior. With self-awareness, other awareness, I can manage myself and my behaviors. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Doable. Yeah, a famous, you aware, another minute. You've got to be willing, right? Yeah, a very say? famous kind of one of the founders of organizational development, Edie Seashore, she always used to say to clients, up until now, oh, I, I can't speak up. I'm too afraid. Well, up until now. Now we're going to talk about, in other words, it you can change your that way, but where you're going forward could be different. Yeah, it's up until now. Up until now, you couldn't take that risk. But let's work on how you're going to be different. I like it. Wonderful thought to close with. Thank you so much for sharing today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. You're a good facilitator. <laughs> ah, thank you. You're a great coach. I was lucky to have you as my coach through my certification process, and I'm very blessed to have you on today to share. Well, great. Thank you, Susie. Really appreciate it. Okay. I hope you got as much out of that interview as I did around executive presence. 
about leaders who derail, confidence, innovation, humility. The show notes for today's episode can be found at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash derailed. Pricelessprofessional.com forward slash derailed. So recently, I had someone stop me and say, hey, I wanted to tell you about your podcast. I've been listening to, it was a certain episode that she had listened to. She said, I've listened to it five times and it's helped me so much. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mark Twain quote, I can live for two months on a good compliment. Well, that's true for me. I can live for two months on a good compliment. (laughs) It made my day. She just kind of told me it in passing, you know, and I asked her a few questions about what about it stood out for her. That just gave me the impetus to want to continue doing the podcast. And so appreciate it if you found meeting here today or any other time in the past with the podcast. Could you leave us a review on iTunes? You go to wakeupeagerworkforce.com and you click on the subscribe button, or you can send me an email note and just say, hey, this is what I got out of this. And then I can use that on my website. If you give me permission, you can tell me it's anonymous or not anonymous. But you can also leave a review on iTunes, and there what happens is that helps us come up in the rankings a little bit and helps people who are looking for something like this, who want to be a wake-up eager leader, who want to build a wake-up eager workforce, who want to be the best that they can be and bring out the best in others. It'll help them find this information. So thank you for thinking about that. Thank you for tuning in today. You can also find me at, I'll say my email address again, Susie, S-U-Z-I-E, at pricelessprofessional.com. I'm on Twitter at Wake Up Eager. I'm on Facebook at Wake Up Eager. And of course, on LinkedIn, Susie Price, S-U-Z-I-E-P-R-I-C-E. And if we connect, I think when we connect on LinkedIn, that means you get to see what goes through my feed within LinkedIn. And we share episodes and headlines from episodes on LinkedIn every day. So if you want to stay in touch that way, that might be a good thing to do too. So our next episode is episode number 42. And I'm going to talk about, we're going to get off of executive presence for a little bit. And we're going to talk a little bit about selection and how to debrief a trimetrics talent report in three steps. So this is going to give you some insight if you're not already using our trimetrics talent reports for hiring and selection and making promotion decisions It's going to help you understand how to put some science into your hiring decision. I'm going to go into three steps, a very simple steps that could help you debrief a trimetrics talent report. I often write up debriefs for clients, but this will help you be able to understand different parts of the assessment or do your own debriefs if you wanted to go that route. I'll also in episode number 42 give you a recap. I just returned from an annual conference in January in Scottsdale, which is a great place to be in January. I was at an annual conference with my assessment partner, which is the organization that I work through for the Trimetrics assessment. And I'll talk a little bit about what's new for 2018. So that's going to be episode number 42. And you'll be able to find it at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash debrief. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of the Wake Up Eager world and reach out if I can help or if you have any suggestions or questions, Susie at pricelessprofessional.com. I'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources. 